This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Murder in Paradise, where I'm sharing stories of tragedies that struck in locations where you least expect it. Beautiful locations, vacation spots, and island paradises, unfortunately, aren't exempt from murder, as we'll see once again in this week's story. There are people who sail away, literally, from the hustle and bustle of the world to find their own private paradise. Some purchase or build their own boats, and then set out for days, weeks, and even months at a time to explore exotic ports of call. Living this way can be a wonderful adventure, but it can also be fraught with challenges and even dangers. This is the story of two couples, one with years of sailing experience behind them and one who were novices and on the run from the law. Their worlds would collide in a place each hoped would be their private paradise. And I'm sure you can guess it would not end well. This is Chapter 4, Murder on Palmyra. May 1974. Buck Dwayne Walker was repairing his 30-foot wooden sailboat to make the 1,000-mile trip from Maui to the Palmyra Atoll. Looking at the boat, most would consider him a madman to even consider taking such a voyage. The vessel, originally named the Margaret, had seen better days. Walker had purchased it four months earlier for $2,200. It had sat on wooden blocks for over two years. Its mast had been snapped off and needed to be replaced. The previous owners had attempted to patch cracks in the hull's wooden planks by fiberglassing over them, but Buck had confidence that he could make it seaworthy, and he had an important reason to do so. He'd been arrested on a charge of selling the drug MDA, an amphetamine, now most commonly known as ecstasy, as well as for gun possession, both violations of his parole for an armed robbery sentence he'd served at San Quentin. He planned to sail away to a remote location where he could not be found and sent back to prison. Included in this plan was his girlfriend of two years, Stephanie Stearns. Stephanie was 28 to Walker's 36. They were different in many ways beyond their age difference. Stephanie was a petite strawberry blonde, always quick with a smile. She was outgoing and liked by everyone who met her. Walker, in contrast, was a tough-looking ex-con with craggy tan skin, long hair, and a muscular, powerful frame. He could have blended into his adopted home of Hawaii as just another aging surfer or boating enthusiast, except for his personality. He rarely smiled or talked to strangers, unless he was asking them for something. He wore a perpetual scowl and kept others at bay with a combination of his rough looks and his fuck-off attitude. Stephanie had met Walker on Hilo, where she lived for three years working for her uncle as a waitress and bookkeeper at his resort. Walker had come to Hawaii after his release from prison to help his father build a cabin on the big island. He and Stephanie were soon living together in a one-room cabin on Hilo. One thing the pair did have in common was their lifestyle. Both Walker and Stephanie did not want to live a conventional lifestyle, home, family, and the nine-to-five grind. They would be considered by most at that time as hippies. They liked living off the grid and in nature with little responsibility to encumber them. They were both recreational drug users and often went barefoot, clad only in shorts and tank tops. Stephanie was bright and had completed a junior college degree in California before moving to Hawaii. Her mother ran a profitable mail-order business 
and her brother Ted was a family man with a successful career. But Stephanie had always marched to the beat of her own drum. She was wide-eyed and somewhat naive, and her family worried about many of her life decisions. She was a very headstrong and stubborn person, however, and could not easily be talked out of her decisions, no matter how hard they might try. Walker told his girlfriend that his stint in prison was a youthful mistake. The gun wasn't even loaded, he said, but he'd been charged with armed robbery anyway. Stephanie's brother, Ted, hearing about his sister's plans to sell off with her 'er ne'er-do-well boyfriend, asked a friend who was a deputy district attorney in California to look up Walker's record. What he found was more than a one-time teenage indiscretion and minor drug offenses. Buck Dwayne Walker began racking up criminal charges from the age of 12 when he was sentenced to a juvenile detention center. The next year, he ran away from the center and was picked up more than once for joyriding and then arrested for grand theft auto. He was charged with robbery at the age of 16, two burglaries by the age of 17, and the armed robbery conviction at age 18 that put him in San Quentin with a sentence of five years to life. He was paroled in 1961 and then arrested again a few months later on another burglary charge. He'd also been committed to a mental institution for the criminally insane for part of his adult life. Ted tried to inform Stephanie of her boyfriend's past, but she kept throwing up defenses for him, and he knew that the information was falling on deaf ears. She was bound and determined to help Walker skate on his latest charge by going into hiding with him on what she said would be a grand adventure. She would not, however, on Buck's orders, tell her family where they were planning to go. So, armed with a few library books on boat building and repair and sea navigation, Buck Walker planned to embark on a deep-sea voyage that even seasoned sailors would be wary of. Stephanie continued working her job as assistant manager of a bar until the last moment in order to stockpile cash to purchase the provisions they needed for their trip. Provisions like canned goods, flour, sugar, beans, vegetable oil, dried fruits and nuts, and 30 gallons of water. They planned to live off the land and add to their food supply with fresh fish and coconuts and other island staples. They also brought along 150 pounds of dog food, as Buck had insisted on taking his two large dogs after Stephanie decided to bring her dog along. Stephanie's dog, Puffer, was a 12-pound ball of fur, while Walker's dogs, Sista and Popolo, were large dogs, Sista, a female lab mix, and Popolo, a male pit bull. This was another decision a seasoned sailor would never make. The sea, and then an unknown island filled with possibly poisonous plants and dangerous creatures, was no place for pets. On June 1, 1974, Buck and Stephanie set sail from the southern shore of Kauai. He had renamed the boat the Iola, which Stephanie told him meant to life in Hawaiian. Although he had been warned that renaming a boat was bad luck, Walker, ever stubborn, painted the new name on the hull. Twenty seven hundred miles away, and one month earlier, Malcolm Mac Graham the third, forty three, set sail from San Diego towards the big island of Hawaii. With him was his ever-present traveling companion, his wife, Eleanor Muff Graham, 42. Their boat, the Sea Wind, was a two-masted 38-foot catch. Mack and Muff had sailed around the world in the Sea Wind after their marriage in 1961. They'd spent six years sailing together on their honeymoon trip. They'd taken several more voyages since, some for a few months or up to a year. This time, Mac was intent on sailing to the isolated islands of the Palmyra Atoll. 
He wanted the adventure of living in a secluded paradise, just the two of them. Their beautiful yacht was well-equipped for any journey and boasted luxuries most sailors could only dream of. The galley was fully stocked with not only plenty of food, but pots and pans for cooking and baking. The kitchen appliances even included an ice crusher, blender, food processor, electric mixer, and pressure cooker. Mac had a workshop on board that was equipped with all the tools needed for any kind of boat repair project he might encounter. There was everything from pipe fittings to bolt cutters and deck fittings. There were also electric drills, an electric generator, and an 1,100-watt portable alternator. They also had a large medical supply on board. A former Sea Wind crewman had been a medical doctor who left behind his bag filled with first aid supplies, as well as prescription medications, along with instructions and dosage recommendations for each. There was a nautical library filled with books on sea navigation, ship repair, medical reference books, and the like, to provide answers for any emergency that might arise. Mac also had a collection of weapons, including a 30 caliber rifle and a 357 Magnum revolver. On their travels over the years, the Grahams had had a couple of close calls with pirates in the open seas, and Mac knew how important it was to have a way to defend themselves. Mac was familiar with weapons, having served in the Army in the 1950s. Muff was not as comfortable around them, but deferred to her husband in matters of security. Mac was excited about their upcoming trip, where they planned to be at sea for at least two years. They were to spend the better part of the first year in Palmyra. Muff, while she couldn't put her finger on it, felt uneasy about the trip. She shared her concerns with some friends and family members. They urged her to stay back if she wasn't enthusiastic about going. Muff was dreading the day she'd have to leave her comfortable home in San Diego and her friends and family, especially her 84-year-old mother. But she said she couldn't send Mac off alone. He was determined to go, and if God forbid something should happen to him while sailing alone, she would never forgive herself. So on May 7, 1974, the sea wind sailed out of San Diego on the first leg of its voyage, first arriving on the big island of Hawaii on May 25th. There they docked and waited to set sail once again until the next full moon on June 24th. Muff hoped this voyage would help Matt get his need for adventure out of his system, and this would be their last extended trip. Tragically, it would be. On Stephanie and Buck's first day at sea, and after their initial elation at being underway, the winds picked up and they hoisted the mainsail. In the evening, when the winds tapered off, Buck lowered it and put up the smaller jib, which gave the Iola about two knots. Moving that slowly, the boat rolled more, causing Buck to become nauseous. An experienced sailor would have stayed with more sail in order to take on more speed, which would have also reduced the amount of roll over the waves. Buck went below to lie down, while Stephanie took over the helm. Buck continued to be seasick and became grumpy and depressed. His father had recently died in a construction accident, contributing to his depression. But another reason could have been the damp and cramped quarters on the boat. Every available space had been taken up with provisions, and they were virtually on top of each other, not to mention the three dogs as well, at all times. For Buck, who'd been a loner most of his life, especially when confined to prison, that much togetherness was grating. Because of his seasickness, Buck put off bringing their 20-horsepower outboard motor inside where it wouldn't be ruined by the wet conditions. This would contribute to more problems later on. The Iola began to leak a great deal. Most wooden boats leaked to some degree, but the problem was beyond normal wear and tear. The previous owners had tried to fix the leaking planks, 
not by recalking them as was recommended, but by slapping on a coat of fiberglass over the hole. The wooden planks tend to work themselves back and forth, and they begin to crack the fiberglass almost immediately, exposing the old leaks and allowing seawater to seep into the boat. The cabin's forward hatch did not shut tight either and also let in water. Everything in the bow stayed wet, and they had to run the generator to pump out the water. One day when Stephanie was alone at the helm, they sailed directly into a storm. Buck ran topside to close the air vent and slipped, falling with a hard thud on the deck. As the boat began to list, he would have been tipped into the sea if it hadn't been for the netting he'd secured from boat astern to keep the dogs from being washed overboard. Stephanie had pleaded with him to wear a lifeline when he came topside during severe weather, but he'd stubbornly refused. This time, he came away with a swollen and blackened eye, but the netting had prevented him from being lost at sea. Stephanie struggled to keep from losing control of the boat. Just as she thought they were goners, the squall disappeared as quickly as it had appeared. Minutes later, the sky was clear once again. Shaking and relieved, Stephanie thanked whatever entity had spared them. But Stephanie's relief didn't last long. After over a week at sea, she had to concede that they were lost. She had learned about sea navigation from a book called Ten Easy Steps to Navigation, which wasn't much help, since one day she would calculate they'd sailed 300 miles to the south, and the next, her calculations told her they'd traveled 700 miles to the east. Finally, on the tenth day at sea, it dawned on her. She was plotting her calculations as if they were south of the equator, when actually they were north of it. Now she was able to determine that they were on course, and had covered about 500 of the 1,000 miles to Palmyra. On June 19th, after 19 days at sea, they finally spotted the island. After a quick glass of rum to celebrate, they soon realized that they still had a problem. To enter the lagoon to access the ring of islands that made up the Palmyra Atoll, they had to navigate through a narrow channel. Most sailors would use their outboard motors to propel them straight through the channel. However, because Buck had not brought the motor inside to protect it from the salt water and humidity, it had frozen up and was now worthless. They would have to wait for just the right wind conditions to sail through the channel. The current always flowed out towards the ocean, so that was no help. They had to wait for an entire week. On June 27th, when they awoke to a steady southwest wind, they hurriedly hoisted sail, but just as they began to get underway, the wind died. As the boat moved backwards with the current, they heard a crunching sound from underneath. The Iola had gone aground on a coral reef. Buck jumped down to survey the damage and soon found himself face to face with a six-foot shark. He scrambled back up into the boat. Just then, two motorized dinghies approached. Need some help? The man in the first boat called out. Please, Stephanie replied, grateful. They tossed a line to Buck, who secured it to the Iola's bow. They pulled them free of the reef and into the lagoon. While they hadn't expected the island to be inhabited, they were grateful for their rescuers, at first. Once docked, they met the others who were on the island. Jack Wheeler, one of the men in the dinghy, had sailed his boat, the Poseidon, to Palmyra with his teenage son Steve, his wife Lee, and their daughter Sharon. A second boat, the Caroline, was a charter boat out of Honolulu and skippered by Larry Briggs, the man in the other dinghy. Buck introduced himself as Roy Allen, which some thought odd, since he had a large tattoo on his arm that read Buck. When asked about it later, Stephanie would reply that it was just a nickname. He introduced Stephanie as his wife. 
Two days later, the Caroline left the island. Now six people were left. Stephanie began settling in, baking bread and making coconut ice cream, while Buck explored the island to see if any useful items could be found. On July 2nd, two more boats sailed into the Palmyra Atoll. The secluded island paradise was becoming even more crowded. Mac and Muck Graham had hit some rough seas on the first leg of their voyage, but their automatic pilot device kept the ship on course, and they quickly made it to the big island of Hawaii. They sailed 2,000 miles in only 18 days. They docked next to a sailboat owned by Curtis Shoemaker. They quickly became friends with him and his wife, Momi. Shoemaker was an avid ham radio operator, and he suggested that he and Mac form a link to communicate with each other while the Grahams were on Palmyra. Shoemaker lived 45 minutes away in a mountaintop home on Hilo and had a radio with a powerful signal. They decided that Mac would radio Shoemaker every Wednesday. He also offered to provide his address, where Mac and Muff's families could send letters that he would read to them over the radio. Muff was more than grateful to have this connection to the outside world. On June 24th, the sea wind continued on the second leg of its voyage. Just over one week later, on July 2nd, it reached Palmyra. On the same day, a second ship arrived as well. The journeyer, carrying Bernard and Evelyn Leonard, also made land. Now there were ten people and three dogs on the island. The Grahams, especially Mac, were disappointed to find so many already inhabiting the island. This was to be Mac's great deserted island adventure, and this was not at all what he had expected. He was especially irritated to hear that the hippie couple, as he would call them, were planning to stay for an indeterminate amount of time. He wrote a letter to his sister in Seattle that was mailed by another boat that departed the island in late July. In it, he wrote, I have told you about the other couple, Roy and Stephanie, who arrived a week before us to their deserted island to live the survival life indefinitely. I am not really upset at other people being on the island, but Muff is. Roy and Stephanie are really not our type, but to dissect them would take another letter. But let me share with you, my dear listeners, a bit about this island paradise called Palmyra. Although designated as an island on maps, Palmyra is actually an atoll. An atoll is a ring-shaped coral reef, including a coral rim that encircles a lagoon partially or completely. Often called a coral atoll, it often sits atop the rim of an extinct volcano, which has eroded or subsided partially beneath the water. The lagoon forms over the volcanic crater, while the higher rim remains above water or at shallow depths that permit the coral to grow and form the reefs. Unlike actual islands, atolls are almost completely flat, with no hills or mountains. The highest elevation on Palmyra is only six feet above sea level. Palmyra had been in private hands since the early 1900s. In 1940, it was declared a prohibited defense area by an executive order in anticipation of the expected Pacific War. The Navy then constructed a naval base on the island. Palmyra is still, in fact, privately owned, but it is considered a possession of the United States. All the visitors to the island are in reality trespassers, but it is so remote and far-flung that the law is rarely enforced. The ten people on the island were docked on the largest islet called Cooper Island. Stephanie and Buck were introduced to the island by Jack Wheeler, and they in turn would later give the tour to Mac and Muff. They could see the sandy beach, and just beyond was the thick, dense jungle where in many places you could not travel through without clearing a path with the machete. There was an abundance of fish in the waters, something that Buck and Stephanie were counting on as a major portion of their food source. 
but Wheeler explained to them that they would have to be cautious. Some of the fish was poisonous, carrying a toxin produced by a type of algae found there. He told them which varieties of fish were edible and which to avoid. Then, of course, there were the sharks that Buck had already encountered. The lagoon was teeming with black-tipped sharks, one of the most aggressive sharks in the Pacific. They could grow up to six feet long. Taking a peaceful swim in the lagoon was out, they now realized. Wheeler took them through the jungle to an old military airstrip on the island. It was covered almost in its entirety with thousands of birds. When they were disturbed, they took to the air, making quite a racket. Birds had built their nests all along the vegetation that had taken over the airstrip. The temperature was extremely hot and humid. Wheeler explained that it never varied more than a few degrees, even at night. The average temperature was 88 degrees Fahrenheit, or 31 degrees Celsius, with 90% relative humidity. Sweat poured off of them. No mild balmy breezes were to be found here, at least none on land. There were thousands of coconut trees, and coconuts would become a staple of their diet, along with the fish they could catch to eat. However, all the foods had to be kept away from the two biggest pests on the island, the hermit crabs and the rats. There were several abandoned military buildings to explore on the island. There was an old warehouse and other buildings, some with usable items and equipment. There was machinery and old vehicles left all over the island by the Navy. There were even some drums of gasoline that could be used for generators and the like. Wheeler took them to an old refrigerator freezer that still worked. The island's visitors could use the freezer to store coconut ice cream and make ice cubes. The refrigerator could be used to keep food and drinks cold. Finally, Wheeler showed them a real treat, a real working bathtub. The military had left behind a big tank that collected rainwater, and someone had set up an old clawfoot tub next to it with a hose running off a tap from the tank. On July 6th, the Wheelers left the island on the Poseidon. The Grahams, the Leonards, and Buck and Stephanie, or Roy, as he was now calling himself, fell into their daily routines. Stephanie knew that the Leonards and the Grahams had spent several evenings socializing together and having dinner on each other's boats. She chalked this up to them being closer in age to each other, although Roy, at 36, was only a few years younger than Mac Graham at age 42. There was something else that made Mac and Muff not feel like the younger couple were their type of people. Roy had explained to the others that he planned to grow a marijuana crop on the island, and not just for their own recreational use, but as an operation that would then be used to fund and supply their life on the island. He'd brought a few plants to start with, and in a few months' time, his associates, Dickie and Carlos, were to arrive to bring supplies to keep them stocked and to check on the operation. Once the crop was in, his associates would take the marijuana to Hawaii, and Roy then said he'd be a rich man. Muff was less than thrilled with this news and wondered what type of people these associates of Roy's would be. She wondered if they might be dangerous and didn't look forward to their arrival. Stephanie often traded with the other island residents. She would make coconut ice cream, coconut butter, and small loaves of bread to trade for other food stuff. Mac had better luck fishing in the lagoon since he had a Zodiac boat he could take out further, where there were more and bigger fish to be found. Stephanie was grateful for the addition to their diet when Mac brought them a big delicious fish that they then cooked for their dinner. After about a week on the island, the Grahams invited the couple to have dinner with them and take a tour of their boat. Stephanie was delighted by the homey feel of the cabin. The cozy wood-paneled cabin had thick carpeting and beautiful furnishings. There was a place for everything tucked away just so, with plenty of space for sitting and relaxing. 
In contrast, their boat was damp and cramped. Their provisions and equipment took up almost every square inch of the cabin, and they were constantly on top of each other. It had become such a problem that Buck had set up a tent on land and now spent parts of his day and some nights living in this makeshift camp, while Stephanie, afraid of rats and other critters on land, stayed on the boat. Everywhere Muff had included elegant touches that made their boat seem more like home. There were framed photographs of the couple in various exotic locations, expertly arranged souvenirs from their travels, and Muff served drinks in crystal goblets and appetizers on nautical-themed china plates. Buck was more impressed with Mac's workshop. He showed him his various tools, including a metalworking lathe and even an acetylene torch used for making new fittings and repairing riggings. He also showed them the sea wind's powerful engine and the boat's woodworking that he had crafted by hand. It was obvious that the Grahams had plenty of provisions to last as long as need be. Stephanie was already having to stretch their food provisions, and she worried that if Buck's associates didn't arrive when they'd promised, they would run out of food. She had asked Jack Wheeler about the closest place to sail to in order to purchase more provisions if needed. He told her that the nearest island where food could be purchased was Fanning, 175 miles to the southeast. However, it would be too difficult to reach in a sailboat without a motor because they would be sailing against the wind. Instead, he told her they should try for American Samoa. But Samoa was more than a thousand miles away. It was extremely unlikely the Iola could make it that far, she thought. Her heart sunk. She and Buck decided that if needed, they would try for fanning. Even so, they didn't have much money, so they would have to try and get some kind of temporary work to earn enough money to purchase more supplies. This, of course, was a worst-case scenario, if Dickie and Carlos didn't show. On July 16th, the Leonards left the island. With them, they took a letter that Muff had written to her mother. She wrote of their neighbors, Roy and Stephanie. They have run out of sugar, cigarettes, and I don't know what. They have bartered with other boats. Next, they will ask us. I pray they won't. Roy has a chainsaw that he uses to cut down trees so they can get to the coconuts easier. It makes Mac furious. To top it off, they have three dogs. This island is no place for dogs. She has a house-type dog, very sweet, named Puffer, and he has a lab and a pit bull which is trained to hunt. They don't have enough food for them. The two big dogs are already roaming out of hunger, looking for anything they can find to eat. What a mess. Why did we have to arrive at the same time? Muff was exactly right. They were running out of provisions quickly. By July 20th, Stephanie wrote in her journal that they had only one month's worth of food left. It was now imperative that Dickie and Carlos arrive on time in late August. On July 22nd, another boat sailed into Palmyra's lagoon. The Shearwater had toured the South Pacific and stopped at Palmyra on its way to Hawaii. The two men on board were Don Stevens and Bill Larson. The next day, they invited Buck and Stephanie on board. They showed them pictures of their South Sea travels and treated them to rum and peanuts. They traded books and magazines and gave Buck some cigarettes. Buck had another huge disappointment. The marijuana growing was not going well. The seedlings they had planted had been quickly eaten by insects. On top of that, there was precious little soil on the island. Buck had an idea to grow the plants on the roof of the refrigerator house, away from insects, rats, and hermit crabs. They spent their days in the hot sun scrounging up enough soil and then transporting it through the jungle by wheelbarrow to dump on the roof. Stephanie agreed to the backbreaking work, 
hoping to also grow some vegetables as well. On August 1st, the Shearwater left, and once again only the Grahams and Buck and Stephanie were left on the island. They still had not received word from Dickie and Carlos about their arrival. Mac had followed through on keeping in contact by radio with Curtis Shoemaker back in Hilo. Every Wednesday since their arrival, Mac called Shoemaker to report in. On August 7th, they had their usual communication, and Muff was thrilled to have a letter from home read to her by Curtis's wife, Momi. She received a card from her mother, as well as a letter from Mac's sister, Kit. They also learned that President Nixon was on the verge of announcing his resignation. They checked in to see if there was word from Buck and Stephanie's associates, but there was still nothing. Later that week, on the way to the bathhouse, Muff was threatened by Buck's dog, Popolo. He lunged at her as she came down the path, and when she fell backwards to the ground, he bared his teeth and growled at her. He seemed ready to pounce, and she screamed for Mac to help her. Stephanie appeared, followed by Buck, and shouted a command to the dog in Hawaiian. He halted his charge and retreated back into the bushes. Mac had just arrived and began screaming at Buck. You need to do something about your dogs. They're a menace. Stephanie tried to smooth things over, but Buck just walked away silently without apologizing. Stephanie noted that Buck had become more testy and short-tempered as their island adventure became more and more challenging. They were also hungry as they were trying to ration their food, and they still had to find a way to feed all three dogs. They were becoming tired of their daily diet of fish, when they could get it, and coconuts, which were ever plentiful. On August 13th, there was a respite from the ever-increasing tension between the two couples when another ship arrived on the island. The Taloa docked, carrying Thomas Wolfe and Norman Sanders on board. Wolfe had taken a leave of absence from his job as a chemical engineer to sail the Pacific. Sanders had sailed the Taloa with his wife and daughter from San Diego to Hawaii, but his seasick spouse declined to continue the voyage and instead flew home to Australia with their child. Wolfe, who wanted to continue his adventure, signed on to help Sanders sail the Taloa on to Australia. They were stopping to rest for a few days in Palmyra. Also thinking that the island would be deserted, the men were surprised to see a long-haired aging hippie row up in a dinghy. The first thing he asked was, you guys have any dope? When they said they didn't, Buck told them, that's okay, I have my own. It's getting down to the dregs, though. The next day, the men were waiting in a clearing where Roy said he'd meet them to take them to a good fishing spot. Stephanie arrived first, and as they were getting acquainted, a dog came barreling out of the brush straight for the men. He immediately ran at Wolf, knocking him down and biting him in the stomach. Stephanie yelled at Popolo to back off, which he did with a piece of Wolf's shirt in his teeth. Goddamn dog, Wolf cried. If he comes near me again, I'll kill it. Good, Buck said coolly. We'd have some fresh meat around here. Wolf gathered that the dog and its owners were both desperately hungry, but he couldn't believe Buck's uncaring and unapologetic attitude. From then on, he would make sure to take a weapon with him for defense against the dogs whenever he was on the island. Later, when Wolf and Sanders were fishing in the lagoon, they heard gunshots. They turned to see Buck shooting at the fish. This guy is a wacko, they thought. They only stayed three days, and before they left, they gave Stephanie some flour and sugar. They felt sorry for the friendly girl, who, along with her boyfriend, seemed ill-equipped to survive on this godforsaken island. Wolf was also amazed that the rickety-looking Iola had made it as far as Palmyra. He would never have considered setting sail in such a rust bucket, he thought. The rigging, he noticed, was a rusted telephone cable. The mast was a novice job at best, and likely to snap in two in a bad storm. 
it was obviously leaking because he heard the bilge pump running on and off the whole time he was there. If it was leaking that badly just sitting in the lagoon, how could it possibly fare at sea, he wondered. Stephanie had told them of their plan to sell the fanning, and he didn't want to tell her that he believed that they'd never make it that far in the Iola. He just hoped their friends would arrive as planned, so they wouldn't be forced to find out. The Taloa sailed away on August 17th. The Iola and the Sea Wind were once again the only two boats left on the island. Buck finally received word from Dickie and Carlos on August 22nd, but it wasn't good news. They'd had some unforeseen circumstances arise, and they wouldn't be able to make it to Palmyra until late October. Things were now becoming desperate for Buck and Stephanie. They'd had little to eat outside of coconuts for the better part of a week, except what they had traded with Wolf, a lone can of chili. According to Stephanie's journal, they began making preparations to sail the fanning. Her last notation detailing their circumstances was dated August 29th. Muff was desperate to leave the island. She didn't tell Mac about her premonition before they sailed away from San Diego. Now it seemed that she should have followed her intuition. She could see all the bad signs. The hippie couple who was becoming more desperate for food and supplies. The menacing figure that was Roy Allen. She was still not sure that he wasn't dangerous. And she was sure that his starving dogs were dangerous and that he did not have any intention of dealing with the problem. Her husband, however, seemed to be loving his time on Palmyra. Every day he would take his machete and go into the jungle to find new places to explore. He'd been cut not once, but three times by the machete, something that had never even happened once before. He simply bandaged himself up and kept going. Nothing seemed to faze him. He was living out his dream of being a survivalist, and the harsher the conditions it seemed to Muff, the happier he was, and the more miserable she was. It was obvious now to Muff that Roy and Stephanie were not leaving, and perhaps they couldn't leave. It was best, she thought, to move on to another location where they wouldn't be saddled with these needy, desperate people who would undoubtedly look at them for their salvation. No, she just couldn't handle that. While Stephanie was nice enough, if too naive and trusting, Roy was just odd, and she didn't approve of the whole marijuana-growing plan. But Mac, ever stubborn, continued with his plan to stay on Palmyra for at a minimum six months. Muff could do nothing but try and make the best of things, no matter how unhappy she was. On Wednesday, September 4th, Curtis Shoemaker tried to reach the sea wind for the usual Wednesday night communication. This night, however, he didn't reach anyone. After 20 minutes, he signed off by saying, Mac, I don't know if you can hear me, but I'll try you again next Wednesday night. Same time as always. Take care, pal. But the next Wednesday, when he still couldn't reach them, Shoemaker became worried. He had heard Muff talk about the hippie couple who were running out of food. Could they have stolen the sea wind and then left the Graham stranded on the island? On September 12th, he decided to call the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard informed Shoemaker that they couldn't do anything unless they knew for sure that someone was missing. Frustrated, Shoemaker called a pilot friend of his and asked for a favor. The pilot, Martin Vitusik, now flew his twin-engine aircraft over the Palmyra Atoll for an aerial search. After 30 minutes of flying over all the islands, he sent a radio message to be forwarded to Shoemaker. There were no boats in the lagoon at all. Palmyra was deserted. Shoemaker reported this news to the Coast Guard, but they still told him that the boats could have just sailed for another port. 
Chewmaker knew that Mac Graham would not have done so without letting him know. He decided that action needed to be taken. The sea wind had to be found. It couldn't simply have disappeared off the face of the earth. He put a call out to his ham radio network, letting everyone know to be on the lookout for the sea wind. He gave a complete description of the book's unique lines and descriptions of Mac and Muff Graham. It was now early October 1974. On October 28th, Bernard Leonard was docked at the Hawaii Yacht Club in Honolulu when he noticed a 37-foot sailboat with distinctive lines sail into the harbor. There was a fresh coat of lavender paint on it, and there was no name or port number displayed on the stern. Even so, Leonard instantly recognized the boat as belonging to Mac and Muff Graham, who he had last seen on Palmyra three months earlier. He then saw the man he knew as Roy Allen pull away from the boat on a dinghy. He'd heard the be on the lookout for the sea wind. He called the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard, in turn, called the FBI office in Honolulu. They reached Special Agent Calvin Shishido. Shishido met with Leonard at the Yacht Club and heard his story about Mac and Muff Graham's disappearance and the sighting of the sea wind with Roy Allen on board. The Coast Guard officer and Shishido rowed out to the boat. There was no one on board. Leonard pointed out the paint job and also pointed to a netting that had been on the Iola that was now on the sea wind. Roy Allen used that netting to keep his dogs from falling off the boat, he told them. They decided the Coast Guard would keep an eye on the boat, and if anyone boarded it, they would call Shishido. At 8 o'clock the next morning, he received a call from the Coast Guard. They reported a man and a woman preparing to leave the boat in a dinghy. Somehow, their arrival on the boat the previous evening had been missed. Before the agent could arrive, the woman later identified as Stephanie Stearns, had dropped the man, Roy Allen, off at the docks and rowed back to the sailboat. The couple had obviously noticed the Coast Guard officers and decided to make a run for it. While Stephanie rowed to the dock and then took off on foot, Buck shed his clothes on the dock and dived into the water. He hid between the docked boats. Bernard Leonard and the Coast Guard officer took off after Stephanie. They found her hiding behind a large potted plant in a hotel lobby with her little dog Puffer in her arms. The officer and Leonard took her back to the small dinghy for the short ride back to the sea wind. Leonard turned to her and asked, Are Mac and Muff alive? Stephanie began to tell him her first version of the events on Palmyra. The Grahams had invited her and Roy over for dinner. They were going fishing for the evening meal first and said they might be a little late. They told the couple to make themselves at home on the sea wind, she said. They waited all night, but they never returned. They spent the night on the Grahams' boat. The next morning, they went looking for the couple and found the Zodiac boat overturned in the lagoon. They searched for days, Stephanie said, but found no sign of them. She said they then left a few days later on the Iola, but it got hung up on a reef, so they returned to the sea wind and sailed it instead. Leonard told it he didn't believe one bit of her story. Interviewed by Coast Guard investigators and the FBI, Stephanie told them that the Grahams had drowned on a fishing trip. It was an accident, she insisted. Shishido told Stephanie that she was in possession of a stolen boat, and at the very least, he believed she had committed the crime of interstate transportation of stolen property. Roy Allen had slipped from their grasp. They found the clothes he'd left behind on the dock, and in them was his wallet with his Hawaii driver's license bearing the name Roy Allen. There was an additional picture of him in the wallet as well. In this photo, he is wearing a clerical collar. Stephanie then told the FBI a slightly different story. On the last Friday in August, she and Roy were making their plans to leave Palmyra. Roy told her that the Grahams had invited them for dinner on their boat. 
He then left the Iola and went ashore. He returned later and told her that the Grahams had said they were going fishing and would be a little late, but to make themselves at home until they returned. At 6.30 that evening, they boarded the sea wind. The Grahams didn't return that evening, and she and Roy spent the night on the Grahams' boat. The next morning, she told of finding the Zodiac dinghy overturned in the lagoon, the dinghy they had reportedly taken fishing. They searched for the Grahams until September 11th, when they finally decided they were gone. Since they didn't know how to operate a radio, they were unable to call for help or to report the incident, she explained. Stephanie said that the Graham statement to make themselves at home on the sea wind meant that they would like her and Roy to keep the boat if anything happened to them. Okay. They tied a 50-foot rope to the Iola, and she steered their boat while Roy towed it with the sea wind out of the channel. On September 11th, the Iola got stuck on a reef, and they then left it behind. She had told Leonard that they had left on the Iola and then returned for the sea wind when it had got stuck on the reef. Now she was telling the FBI that they had towed the Iola. They now knew that she was lying. She told them she and Roy, she still hadn't given his real name, arrived in Kauai on the sea wind on October 12th. They stayed there overnight and then sailed to Oahu, arriving on October 15th. They remained there for a week, continuing on to the Kihai Lagoon on October 21st. The next day, they dry docked the sea wind and repainted it another color. On October 28th, they took it back into the water, sailing into the Honolulu Yacht Club on October 28th when Leonard spotted them. But sure, it was an accident, and they had nothing to do with the Graham's disappearance. Meanwhile, they had numerous opportunities over a month to alert authorities about the so-called accident, and not only did they fail to do so, but they attempted to disguise the boat as well. That afternoon, Stephanie was booked into the Honolulu jail on charges of stealing the sea wind, as well as $400 cash from Mac and Muff Graham. Her bail was set at $20,000. She called her mother to tell her about her arrest and request her to pay the bail. Her mother declined to pay to have her released. She worried that if she did, her daughter might hook up with her fugitive boyfriend and take off. They might never see her again, she thought. Special Agent Shishido was one smart cookie. He quickly surmised that this Roy Allen character might be involved in drug running. He wasn't your typical yachter, he thought, and these hippie dropout types were sometimes known to steal boats to smuggle drugs. He took the picture and ID they'd found to Honolulu's Drug Enforcement Administration office on a hunch. He showed the picture to the first DEA agent he encountered. Hey, that's Buck Walker, the agent said. We're after his ass. Shishido couldn't believe his luck. The DEA agent went on to tell him that Buck Dwayne Walker sold to an undercover agent, pled out, and then skipped before his sentencing. Shishido now knew he wasn't looking for Roy Allen, but the fugitive Buck Walker. On November 1st, a team that included Shishido and another FBI agent, Honolulu's assistant district attorney, Several Coast Guard divers and Jack Wheeler landed on Palmyra to do a search of the island. This time, the island was deserted. On their way in, they looked for the Iola that Stephanie had said was hung up on the reef. There were no boats in sight. Their first goal, of course, was to find Mac and Muff Graham. A search of the island found the remains of Buck's camp. His tent was still up, and a bookcase filled with books was still inside. They also found several containers with foot-high marijuana plants growing on their refrigerator house, but no sign of the Grahams. Divers searched underwater near where the sea wind had been docked. 
They also attempted to search the lagoons, but the sharks were so plentiful and so aggressive that they could not complete any kind of thorough search. The FBI found two items of note, however. One was a hatch cover to a boat that Jack Wheeler was sure belonged to the Iola. This pointed to the fact that Buck and Stephanie had not sailed the Iola off the island, they determined. No one would take a boat out to sea without its hatch cover. Without it, the boat would take on water and quickly sink. This was another piece of evidence they would use to refute Stephanie's story. The second discovery was actually a missing item that hinted at something more ominous. In the abandoned Navy warehouse, Agent Shishido discovered an old sea rescue boat. On the boat was a place that held three containers that were used to store provisions. Two of the large containers were missing. The third was still present. Shishido thought that since they were looking for two people, this find might indicate that these containers, perhaps large enough to hold a body, were used to dispose of the grams. I told you he was a smart cookie. The FBI's working theory was that the Grahams were tied up or incapacitated in some other way, put onto the Iola, and then the boat was towed out to sea and sunk in the ocean. They now had the terrible task of telling Mac and Muff's family that they are presumed dead, but no bodies had been found. An all-points bulletin had been put out for Buck Dwayne Walker. His face, along with the story of the missing Grahams, had been plastered all over the Hawaiian newspapers, but ten days later, he was still at large. When he dove into the water in the harbor, he had stripped down to his swimming trunks. Some of the cash he'd stolen off the sea wind was still in his pocket. He was able to purchase a set of clothes, and disguising himself as another tourist, purchased a plane ticket under the name J. Evans. He boarded an Aloha Airlines flight to Hilo. He stopped in to see an old girlfriend who'd taken him in and then given him some camping equipment and food. She drove him 30 miles up into the mountains and dropped him off. He camped out for a week in a secluded spot, but then decided he wanted more creature comforts, so he checked into a motel in town. He then visited the motel's cafe for a meal. Because he hadn't been in town, he didn't know that his face was plastered all over the papers. This reminds me of both the Kerry Stainer case, as well as the Richard Ramirez Night Stalker case. Both were unaware that their photos had been widely released to the public, aiding in their capture. Sure enough, as he was sitting with his morning coffee, a waitress recognized him from the newspapers and called the police. Before he could react, the FBI was at his table and he was under arrest. In his interview with agents, Buck told the same account as Stephanie had, that the Grahams had gone fishing, they found their dinghy overturned the next morning, and presumed they'd drowned. He said they tried to tow the Iola that had got hung up on the reef before they sailed the sea wind to Kauai. He added one more detail about the sea wind's new paint job. He said they were rammed by a swordfish on the way to Hawaii. He'd patched the hole and then decided to paint the entire boat. When did you come to the big island, the agent asked. About a week ago, he answered. Why, the agent prodded. Because I didn't want to get caught, stupid, Walker sneered. Finally, the agent asked the real question. So how'd you dispose of their bodies? Without missing a beat, Walker answered, fuck off. I told you about his attitude, didn't I? Buck Walker was arrested for the fugitive warrant, as well as for the theft of the sea wind. Stephanie made bail on November 13th, when her aunt used her home as collateral to cover the bail. She was living with friends on the Big Island awaiting her trial, while Buck remained in custody. Their trials were to take place separately. On June 19, 1975, she was tried on three charges, theft of the sea wind, illegal transportation and interstate commerce of stolen goods, 
and theft of $400 belonging to the Grahams. Although the authorities were convinced of it, there were no murder charges as no bodies had been found. The prosecutors blew a big hole in Stephanie's story when they produced pictures they had discovered. In one, there was a picture of the Iola taken on the open sea. The photo was taken from the deck of the sea wind. This contradicted her story that the Iola had gotten hung up on the reef on their way out of the channel. The picture proved that their boat had clearly made it out and into the open sea. The hatch cover is missing in the photo of the Iola, which was proof positive, the prosecution asserted, that they had intended to sink her at sea. They also cast doubt on her story about finding the Graham's Zodiac boat overturned in the lagoon. Not only was there no evidence that the boat had ever been submerged in salt water, but experts testified that the Zodiac was just about the most stable watercraft that was available. The Zodiac was almost impossible to overturn, even by the most novice user, and Mac Graham was very familiar with the use of the dinghy. They had tried to recreate the conditions and even went so far as to put four men into the Zodiac and rock it as much as possible. It never came close to capsizing. Personal note, I read about this demonstration in Vincent Bugliosi's book, And the Sea Will Tell, about this case many years ago. I'm deathly afraid of deep water, but when I was in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico several years ago, I had the opportunity to go whale watching from a Zodiac boat. I was promised we could get up close and personal, to an extent, with the whales from this small dinghy. Well, normally that would get a big hell no from me, I trusted the Zodiac's stability from what I'd read, and I can tell you that I've never felt safer in the water than I did in that boat. And I got to see some awesome whales so close. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Okay, now back to the trial. Stephanie Stearns was found guilty on all counts. The judge sentenced her to two years in federal prison for the theft of the sea wind and five years probation on the other two counts. Buck Walker's trial was next, and he'd learned from Stephanie's mistake. He now said that the Iola and the Sea Wind had sailed side by side off of Palmyra, as was proven by the photos. He now explained that while the Iola had gone aground in the channel, he had been able to free her. Once at sea, however, he claimed he saw she'd been badly damaged and was leaking significantly. That was when they'd abandoned their boat and sailed the rest of the way on the Sea Wind. The jury wasn't buying it, and Buck Walker was found guilty on all counts. He was sentenced to 10 years, but first had to serve a five-year sentence for his original drug charge. He was sent to a federal prison in Washington State. On January 25, 1981, six years after the Grahams went missing, Sharon Jordan was taking a walk on the beach at Cooper Island on Palmyra. She and her husband had been staying on Palmyra for about two months. About a half a mile later, she had crossed into the beach located on Strawn Island and noticed something shiny glinting in the sun. As she walked closer, she was horrified to discover a human skull lying on the beach. One of the teeth had a gold cap, which was the shiny object that had caught her attention. She immediately thought of the story she had heard of the missing couple. It's one of them, she thought. There was an aluminum container nearby with the lid lying next to it and some wire that looked as if it might have been spooled around it. She saw other bones next to it, and it was clear that they must have fallen out of the container that once held them in the sea. There was a small bone with a lady's gold wristwatch around it. There had been a big storm the last couple of days, and she surmised it must have been this that brought the container to shore, where it spilled its grisly contents. 
On February 17th, the FBI announced that the bones found washed up on the beach at Palmyra had been positively identified through dental records as those of Eleanor Muff Graham. The skull was found with a hole in the temple, although it could not be determined whether it was from a gunshot or something else. There was also burn marks on the bones. They speculated that someone had attempted to burn the body first. As it was too large to fit into the container hole, they determined that the bones had been fractured to be made to fit inside the box. Stephanie Stearns had served her sentence and was now living in California. She was arrested and charged with the murder of Muff Graham. The next day, she was freed on $100,000 bond. Walker was supposed to be incarcerated at McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary in Washington, but when Shishido called, he was informed that the inmate had escaped over a year earlier. He'd been held in a minimum security camp on Puget Sound and escaped in July of 1979. Walker had attempted to write to Stephanie over the years, but she had cut off all contact with him. She would be no help in locating him. However, he'd had just one visitor during his time in prison. An older married woman with a family had begun visiting him regularly. The day after Buck Walker escaped, she'd left her family, cleaned out their savings account, and disappeared. They followed the trail of this woman, first tracing her to a Las Vegas address, and then to a motel in Yuma, Arizona. It was there they captured Buck Walker and arrested him for murder. Buck Walker and Stephanie Stearns were tried separately in federal court in San Francisco. Stephanie hired famed attorney Vincent Bugliosi, who had prosecuted the Charles Manson case. He pointed to Buck Walker as the murderer and was successful at convincing the jury that not only was she innocent of murder, but that Walker had hidden the fact that he'd murdered the Grahams from his girlfriend. She was acquitted on all charges. Buck Walker was convicted of the murder of Muff Graham and given a sentence of life in prison. He served 22 years of his life sentence in a federal prison in Victorville, California, before being paroled in 2007 at the age of 69. He was granted parole due to declining health. He lived in a trailer in Willits, California, where he suffered a stroke two years later and died. He changed his name to Wesley G. Walker, and under that name, he had written a book in which he now claimed that he'd been seduced by Muff Graham and was caught by Mac having sex with his wife. Mac, he says, shot and killed his wife and then attempted to shoot him as well. He claimed to have killed Mac Graham in self-defense. The Graham's families considered this ludicrous, considering all the letters Muff had written detailing her abhorrence to Roy Allen. Stephanie Stearns hasn't had any other issues with the law since her acquittal. She seems to have lived a quiet life as a law-abiding citizen. She lived for a time in California, and as of this writing, is still alive and possibly living either in California or Hawaii. Stephanie's dog Puffer, as well as Buck's two dogs, Popolo and Sista, traveled with them back to Hawaii on the sea wind. Stephanie had Puffer with her when she was first arrested. A friend took the dog in while Stephanie was in jail, and they were reunited upon her release. Popolo and Sista completed a six-month impoundment to make sure they were disease-free. Afterwards, they were made available for adoption, and two separate families adopted them. They lived out their lives with their new families on Oahu. Malcolm Mac Graham's body has never been found. Authorities believe he is most certainly in the second missing box. His disappearance and presumed murder is still an open case. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.